Well, we are into the book of Leviticus in our yearly reading, for those of you who are following our general church calendar. And there have been uh, some times this year in my own reading of Leviticus that have been deeply devotional, where I have been struck indeed by this passage that I'm going to be preaching on tonight. And there is something about Leviticus that needs to be devotional, or we can just miss the entire picture that it is painting for us. If you were like me when, you, when I was a younger person, this is places where I'd get bogged down. Well, actually, probably even more than this was about the first seven chapters of Numbers, when there's a whole lot of names. I, I struggled with that one, I'm not going to lie. But even here, even to this day, if I'm reading Leviticus, I can just fly over it. I, it just seems to be so repetitive, and there seems to be such a disconnect between how I live today and how these people were called to live back then that I'm, unless I am approaching it with a heart of faith and a heart of, of slowing down and of patience and trying to understand exactly what I'm reading, we may miss it. And what I want to do tonight is talk about the first seven chapters of Leviticus. No, not go through each of those seven chapters. But to give us a big picture overview of what these first seven chapters of Leviticus are pointing toward and then dive in by way of application in a sense I hope that will help you as you continue to read in the book of Leviticus. This is an important book. This is one that is quoted in our New Testament. And most importantly, it's given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed, and therefore, it is profitable. It is profitable for the way you live and I live today and this week. And I hope we are going to get there. I hope by the end of this time, not only are you going to have worshipped, we're going to have worshipped together from this passage, but you are going to have a, a perspective on the way you approach God and on the way you trust that he has accepted you. And really what we're going to look at are three things tonight that is going to be both our three points and our title tonight. The overview of what we're going to try to bring out from Leviticus, I'm going to call access, approach, acceptance. Access, approach, and acceptance. And what I think you're going to find is that when we look back at access, approach, and acceptance in Leviticus, we see access, approach, and acceptance also brought out for each one of us in the way that we live our lives under the gospel. So let's start with that first one. And what I'm going to call this is access, but it's really God's access that is offered to us. What is Leviticus really about? Well, let's go back to chapter 1 of Leviticus. If you're taking notes, that's great, but let's make sure to have our Bibles open together here. The very name Leviticus comes from a Latin Vulgate term that means of relating to the Levites, to the Levitical, as sometimes it's called, system. But of course, Leviticus doesn't only deal with the duties of the Levites. It deals with the entire sacrificial system by which God offered access 
to man. Notice with me in chapter 1 and verse 1. Leviticus begins, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now the tabernacle of the congregation we read about in Exodus. That was the place that was put together. It was prepared by the people of God where God's presence would dwell. His holiness would dwell. So God is now dwelling in this tabernacle and he is speaking from the tabernacle to Moses. And God, these words, importantly, are directly from the mouth of God. God is speaking them to Moses. In fact, just as we see in, in chapter 1 and verse 1, if you were to go over to chapter 4 and verse 1, you would see again, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying. So we are looking at quotations here of God's directives to Moses, what Moses is to say and to teach to the Old Testament Jews. Now, what is going on here? God is speaking, God is proclaiming, and he is giving commands. Verse 2 says of chapter 1, again, we'll go back to chapter 1. Verse 2 says, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If, if any man of you bring in offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd. Let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Now, what is the big question? What is the key question that the book of Leviticus is dealing with? It's dealing with how God's Old Testament people would have access to him. And this is a central question, perhaps the central question, that religion, true religion, false religion, has attempted to answer throughout millennia, throughout all of human existence. How does man access God? Because all of us, there is a hole in human hearts. There is a natural kind of, of awareness that we have in our hearts of a God, of someone who is above us, who has made us, who is more powerful than we are, who has certain expectations of us. And if you go back to the very beginning, you see that man was concerned about how he might access God. You remember at the very beginning, immediately after sin had entered the world, we see the story of Cain and Abel. And what is their central dilemma? How are we to approach God? What access do we have to God? Abel accesses God in one particular way that's accepted, and Cain offers, uh, uh, attempts to access God in a way that was not accepted. And so here, dealing with this very clear um, uh, uh, understanding, awareness in human hearts, God is offering access to his people. And that is what these first seven chapters of Leviticus are all about. How can I have a relationship with God? How can I have fellowship with God? How can I have forgiveness from God? How can I express worship toward God? And God says to his people, do you want to know? Here is seven chapters for you to address just that. Well, notice God is speaking. The subject here is 
the relationship with man and God, the access that's offered. And then notice here some specifics. Now, this is the time that some of our children can especially tune in because I'm going to talk about five different offerings that the first seven chapters of Leviticus deal with. Now, maybe you've already gone through in your reading this year, and maybe you've marked all of these down already, and if, if so, great, you're already ahead. But if you have not, you can really just follow the progression of these different offerings. Leviticus 1, does anyone know, would anyone be willing to say, what kind of offering is covered in Leviticus chapter 1? It is the burnt offering, okay? The burnt offering. In fact, the word burnt offering that is here in Leviticus 1 in the Hebrew literally means to ascend. And why do you think a burnt offering has the very word to ascend? Because what is ascending in a burnt offering? Smoke. So that's literally the idea that is being conveyed by the word itself. Smoke is rising. And the idea of a burnt offering seems to have been a general approach to God for atonement and acceptance. If you were just to write down, what is a burnt offering? A burnt offering was the central general approach to God for, uh, for acceptance and atonement. Now, you could, we could fill this out at far more detail. But there was a burnt offering every morning. There was a burnt offering every evening. There was a burnt offering on the Sabbath. There was a burnt offering at special times throughout the year. This was the general approach of man to God. And you can read more about it in Leviticus 1. Leviticus 2. Does anyone know what particular offering was described in Leviticus chapter 2? The grain offering, very good. We are already getting extra credit as we speak. A grain offering. Now, what was the grain offering? We see it here in chapter 2 in our King James Bible. It's called a meat offering, but that does not mean animal. It means grain. That is what the idea is. So that could have been wheat. It could have been barley, depending on the season of the year. And what was a grain offering all about? A grain offering was a recognition of God's supply, a recognition of God's provision. It was a kind of grateful approach to God. So a burnt offering might be a general approach to God for atonement and acceptance. A grain offering might be a grateful approach to God, reflecting particularly not animal sacrifice, but a kind of provision generally that he has provided. Now what about chapter 3? Does anyone know what kind of offering is provided specifically in Le Leviticus 3, though it's described elsewhere in Leviticus as well? Peace offering. Now, what is a peace offering? Now, it's been said when someone talking about this noted, if I were to say that I was coming home to my wife with a peace offering, what would you think was going on? Uh-oh, Peter. You're in trouble. Better stop by the floral shop on the way home. You have a peace offering. That's not it. That's not this. It's actually almost the exact opposite of this. A peace offering is not saying, God, can we even be friends again? A peace offering actually in the Old Testament or this system was a very specific kind of thanksgiving and worship of God. So, for example, you see elsewhere in Leviticus chapter 7, it was offered in direct thanksgiving to God. Maybe for a specific kind of event, like, God, you really did something amazing for you. I'm bringing a peace offering to you. Or it could be connected to a vow. 
Let's say you had a vow and that vow was fulfilled and God has acted on your behalf and you would come forward bringing your vow that you had vowed and you would offer it with a peace offering. It was a particular kind of worshipful approach to God. So we've got burnt offering, we've got grain offering, we've got peace offering. And then Leviticus 4 offers, describes a fourth kind of offering. And that is the sin offering. You say, what is a sin offering? Well, we'll look about at one of those at a little bit more detail. But a sin offering was one that was, that was offered not just for general atonement before God, not just general kind of access to God, but specific, specific atonement. You'll see here over and over it's referred to different classes or kinds of people who sinned, in a sense, unintentionally, not presumptuously, in fact, the Old Testament law says there was no forgiveness. There was no atonement for someone who willfully and, if you will, maliciously was violating the law. But there's a sense in which this person would be unintentionally falling into a particular certain violation of the law and that person would bring a sin offering for that. Well, into Leviticus 5 and Leviticus 6, we see the final category of, of offering, at least insofar as it's here in the book of Leviticus, we see elsewhere things like drink offerings and the like. But this kind of offering, we might call a trespass offering or a guilt offering. Trespass offering or a guilt offering. What is that? Well, again, if you were to read there, you would see particular kinds of sin offerings that involved a kind of, of, um, of reimbursement, if you will, or a kind of restitution for wrongdoing. If someone stole something, he would have to bring not only a trespass offering, but he would bring, he would restore over and above what he had stolen. It was connected again to a particular kind of sin or a, a violation of the law that would involve restitution of wrongdoing. So again, five kinds of offerings. A burnt offering, a grain offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, and a guilt or a trespass offering. Now again, notice what is the picture here. There is God's access. How do I get to God? God says, I'm going to show you. Bring one of these offerings for different things. General approach to God, you burn offering. A, a kind of general gratitude toward God, a grain offering. A specific kind of thanksgiving and worship that you want to offer, a peace offering. A specific sin that needs to be atoned for, a sin offering. A kind of restitution required in your relationship, not just with me, but in, with other people, a trespass offering. You see, God's saying, you want avenues to me? Here they are. Now let's zone in for just a minute on Leviticus 4. Leviticus 4, because this is where we're going to focus now, we're going to talk again about these sin offerings for specific individual sins that people had committed. And I'll just note, I'll just outline this out very quickly because I think it might be helpful. Verse 1 through 12 is dealing specifically with a priest's sin. So uh, there was a specific kind of offering that a priest was required to sin when he had sinned uh, unintentionally, if you will. And it was a bull, a male bull. The next, what we see is verse 13 through 21, is the sin of the congregation. If the entire congregation falls into sin, and they also were to bring a young bull. They were required to bring a bull for an offering for the entire congregation. Verse 22 through 26 deals with a ruler. So again, we're kind of taking the priest, 
the whole congregation. Now we're dealing specifically with the sin of the ruler. And that if there's a ruler that has sinned, they are to bring a male goat. Interesting, isn't it? There's a young bull for the priest or for the congregation. For the ruler, it is to be a young male goat. And then verse 27 through 31, notice, it's dealing with if any one of the common people sin through ignorance. So there is, again, this kind of different approach to God that is directed toward the specific person. And we should note that the, the sacrifice for the common person was what? A female goat, not a male goat, not a bull. And there seems to be a sense in which God is, is allowing people, based on their economic circumstances, to approach him in different ways depending on their own resources. A, a priest might have access uh, already to these bulls and could offer that. The congregation, the entire group of people, obviously would have access to a bull. A ruler might just have a male goat. A common person might have a female goat, maybe less valuable than a male goat. Whatever it is, God is providing different kinds of access specifically toward his people. So notice, first of all here, God's access is offered. But then notice here, as we focus on Leviticus 4, man's approach is required. So God's access is offered in specific ways, and man's approach is required. Let's dive here into verse 27 together, and we'll look at what man's approach was required. If any one of the common people sin through ignorance while he doeth somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and be guilty. So his guilt has been established or if his sin which he hath sinned come to his knowledge. Oh wow, I violated God's law. Notice what happens. Then he shall bring his offering, his sin offering. A kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for his sin, which he has sinned. So for his sin, he brings a female goat. Now notice here, what he brought specifically is a substitute. That's what he brought. He brought something for his sin. He cannot go and take back his sin anymore. And for that sin to be punished is for something to be substituted for his sin. He brings an offering for his sin. Now notice something else here. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. So what did he do? He brought a substitute. And then what did he do? Again, I just want you to think about this picture. Where is he? He's in front of the tabernacle of the congregation. He is following God's access, his avenue for approaching him. And what he does is he puts his hand on the young goat. And why would he do that? Why did God say, put your hand on the head of this goat? If you want the best answer to that question, go read Spurgeon's sermon on that. I can't preach like Spurgeon, so I'm not even going to try. You can go see Spurgeon preach at least two and maybe more sermons on why in each of these things the hand goes on the head. But can we say at a minimum that it is bringing out the idea of substitution again? He is putting his hand on the head. And I want you to, to stand with that man or that woman in, in that moment. It is their goat. 
That goat means something to them. It is economically valuable. It is a resource. It is their goat. And they put their hand on the head of that goat and then they kill the goat. It doesn't say the priest kills the goat. They kill the goat. Now, I've never killed a goat. Maybe some of you here have, and I'm looking at you, Medfords. I don't know whether any of you have killed a goat. But I want you to imagine. I have to imagine that process involves some mess. And you've got some bleeding. And you've got some noise. And you've got some struggle. And you're the one that killed it after you have put your hand on its head. Can you imagine how sober that moment would have been? Because as you stood there, wouldn't it have been going through your mind, Peter, this is you, this is your fault. You are the reason this goat is dying. This goat is unblemished. This goat did nothing wrong. You did something wrong. And now you put your head on this and you reflect on what you did and then you kill it yourself. Wow. That is sobering stuff. And I think it is intentionally what God is providing. This animal is dying because of me. And then you kill it. And it's dead. And it's never coming back. Now, this kind of picture, this kind of perspective, the things we do ourselves are powerful in a much less sobering sense, but still a kind of sobering sense. I remember talking to one of my colleagues at work, and we were reflecting on the fact that after I became a partner at my firm, I'm no longer an employee. I'm actually technically a part owner, so that means I have to pay quarterly taxes. I don't get to take withholdings. And this colleague and I were kind of joking around about how painful it is four times a year to write a check to the federal. It's not like withholding. A withholding, you know, the, the, your employer just takes it away. And you might look at a W-2 at the end of the year and say, wow, you know, the, the government took its fair, it took its, not fair, took its share of what I was making there. But it's another thing when I've got to go to my bank account and figure out my routing information and write in the amount of what I'm supposed to pay. And it feels significant. In fact, this colleague was kind of joking. Man, I think I'm just getting more politically conservative as I have to do this process over and, and over. It means something. And again, in a far more significant sense, the idea that you had to kill the goat, you had to put your hand on its head, it was dying because of you, seems exactly what God was intending. But then notice what happens. Even though you killed the goat, you could not by yourself get access to God. The priest was required. Notice what comes next. Verse 30, And the priest shall take of the blood thereof with his finger. So again, the animal is dead. It's bleeding out. And the priest takes the blood and puts it, smears it, on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. Now, if you were to go look at the idea of the altar, you would have four horns on it, on the altar. The altar was the sacred place of, of the tabernacle. And you'd smear that blood on the horns. What an interesting thing. And not only that, then they would smear the blood on the horns. And then what they would do is they would pour out all the blood 
at the bottom of the altar. So some of the blood goes on the horns, and then all of the blood goes at the bottom of the altar. And then, verse 31, and he shall take away all the fat. So all the fat of the goat gets scraped off as the fat is taken away from off the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it. What? The fat. The priest burns the fat that has been scraped away upon the altar for a sweet savor unto the Lord. So again, notice this picture. The animal is killed. The priest clearly is the one now going between you and God, taking the blood, smearing it on the horns of the altar, the holy, sacred place of the Jewish religion, and then pouring the blood out and lighting the fat of that animal on fire, and you see the smoke arise from the animal that you killed and the priest is sacrificing before God. Again, I, I, I'm just struck by what an incredible picture that is. By the reality, if you were there, if you were participating in that, how would you have responded? What would your emotions have been as you watched that animal being sacrificed for something you did wrong, you violated, and now that animal dies? God's access is offered, but the approach of man was required in very specific, tangible steps. But what I want to focus on third, and I think most beneficially for us, I hope tonight, is thirdly, God's acceptance promised. Notice again in verse 31. The priest shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the priest shall make an atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. That's, those are God's words. It shall be forgiven him. You say, why does that matter? Well, stop for a minute. You're the person who has sinned. You put your head on the goat. You put your hand on the head of the goat. You killed the goat. This interesting uh, offering happens before you. Blood on the horns. Blood poured out at the altar. Burning, smoke ascending. And what is your message from God? It's forgiven you. Now, what ability would you have to prove that? What verification did you get from God? Was there a voice coming down from heaven? Was there something proclaimed to you from God? Did fire come down from heaven and burn up your offering? No. It was entirely repetitious. It was entirely habitual. This is what you do. And if you do this, it shall be forgiven. And you walk away from that and you say, God's forgiven me. It's done. Atonement has been made. In other words, what assurance did you have that your very interesting offering before God had been accepted? Nothing but God's word. God said it shall be forgiven and you walked away from the, from the, uh, from the tabernacle of the covenant saying it was forgiven. I am right with God. Atonement has been made. Now, why is that relevant to us? Why is that important to us? Because really, frankly, in one sense, friends, nothing has changed. 
Are you the type of person that has a hard time dealing with your guilt or with your shame? You fall into a besetting sin. You stumble in some way that affects your spouse or your children or your co-workers and you feel guilt and you feel shame and you wonder, did God forgive me when I asked him? How do I know that there was forgiveness that was offered? Friends, in a certain sense, you have the exact same assurance that they had under the Old Testament law. In a certain sense, it shall be forgiven him. God's word. That is the assurance that you have. It is the assurance that was given. It is the assurance that is given to us. But notice not only here is this unambiguous promise, it shall be forgiven, but notice as well this pleasure that God accepts it in. Have you ever stopped over those simple words and the priest shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor? That's an aroma, a sweet smell to God. Do you know if you were to look through the first seven chapters of, of Leviticus, you would see that phrase 11 different times? Do you think God wants to send us a message about this? He wants us to realize when a burnt offering, a sin offering, a grain offering, each one of these is applied to this, is made and the burning of this offering ascends to me, it smells good. Why would God tell his people, this smells good to me? Do you think any of his people felt the same? I've never smelled an animal burning before, but I, I'm going to venture a guess it doesn't smell great. I don't think it smells very good. Do you think as they stood there and watched that animal that they brought and they killed, they watched it burn and they smelled it, do you think in immediately, instinctually, their response was, well, this smells fragrant. This smells great. No. What assurance did they have that it smelled good to God? His word. He said, it smells good to me. The simple point that I'm making here is that God was doing at least two things through this burnt offering, through this sin offering. He was teaching something to his people. One thing that he was teaching them is when you put your hand on the head of this unblemished goat and you kill it, that was you. This animal is dying because of you, and I want you to feel it. I want you to be sobered by it. Friends, he was teaching them something about repentance. Turn over, keep your finger in Leviticus chapter 4, but turn over to Psalm chapter 51. I just want to make an observation here that is certainly not new, but I think is important. Of course, this is the psalm when David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba. And with killing Uriah the Hittite, he has been an adulterer, he has been a murderer, and he feels his guilt and his shame deeply. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. You say, wait a second. I thought we've been reading in Leviticus 7 that God does delight in burnt offering. I thought he did require sacrifice. Well, what is David saying? Look at the next verse. The sacrifices of God 
are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Here's what David is saying. God, I know what you're after. You're not after a dead goat or a dead lamb. You're after my heart. That's what most importantly, that is what is most important to you. Now, is a burnt offering therefore not important? No, look at verse 18 and 19. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Zion. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. David is not saying that the Old Testament law or the Old Testament ritual was not pleasing to God. He said what you really care about though, what is the purpose, what is the goal underlying all of it, is that it starts in my heart. What God was teaching his people in Leviticus chapter 7 as they put their head, hand on the head of that goat and killed it was for a broken heart, for a contrite heart that humbled itself in repentance before God and said, God, I've been wrong and there is a consequence that something innocent had to pay. It's repentance. It's a contrite heart. God was teaching his people that central requirement of coming to him. But he was also teaching them something else. As we've been talking about, as they watched that smoke go up and they're, they said, God is pleased with this. This smells good to him. What was it? It was accepting it by faith. On the basis of what? God's word. And as they walked away from that tabernacle of the congregation, what were they saying to themselves? It shall be forgiven. I am forgiven. On the basis of what? The blood of bulls and goats? No. Hebrews 10 tells us a blood of a bull or a goat can never take away sin. It was never about that. What was it about? It was about faith. It was about the word of God. And it was about the provision of God pointing forward to the perfect sacrifice once for all of Jesus Christ. You see, Leviticus is talking to us. It's teaching us about repentance, what it looks like. And it's teaching us about faith and what that looks like. Taking God at his word and reflecting in humble repentance on the consequences of what our own sin has required in order for us to have access to God. Repentance, faith. In other words, the gospel is all over this passage. This passage is ultimately typifying, looking forward to the gospel because in the same way that these men and women approached God in repentance and in faith, so you and I approach God today in repentance and in faith. Hebrews 9 says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That is what our gospel is about. It is about repentance for the consequences of what we have done in relation to Jesus Christ. And it is about the faith that accepts our forgiveness from him. There's just one more point here on this as we look at our own faith. Ephesians 5, 2 tells us that we are to walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling 
savor. Paul is pointing back to Leviticus and saying, as they watch the smoke of that burning ascend up to God, so that sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us is the same sweet smell before God. Two more points and we're going to be done very briefly. The first is this. How does this relate to your practical life? Well, first of all, it says, accept Jesus Christ and his sacrifice by repentance and by faith and you will be saved. But it also says something about the way you relate to your daily life. I asked previously, are you one of the people who deals with guilt and shame? Do you, are you one of the people who wonders whether when you confess your sin, he, it actually is forgiven? Turn over to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. This is a very familiar passage, but it's one that I want to encourage you again in light of what we have seen here in the book of Leviticus. Start with me in 1 John chapter 1 at verse number 7. John says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood, the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, why does it say he's faithful and he's just? Because just like in Leviticus, a substitute has been offered. Just like in Leviticus, someone has stood in your place. Someone guilt-free, innocent, has been killed for you. And therefore, if God were to hold sin against you he would be demeaning. He would be refusing the sacrifice of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. He must be faithful. He must be just to forgive you based on what Jesus has done for you. In other words, God cannot do anything but forgive you to be consistent with his character because he is faithful and he is just. And my simple point is this. Have you tripped up today? Have you sinned? Well, when you confess it to him, you can walk away with the same kind of assurance, it shall be forgiven you. Why? Because a substitute was made, and it was a perfect one, and it was a spotless one. And by the character of God, God can do nothing else but say, it was forgiven him, it was forgiven her. So come boldly, plead the blood of Jesus Christ to whatever sin, none of which are too severe, too significant, for you not to claim as a promise of God the forgiveness that will wipe away your shame and will wipe away your guilt and allow you to interact freely and boldly with him. It shall be forgiven him. It's the same promise for you. But there's one more aspect that I want to bring out before we close tonight, and this relates to our Lord's Supper. I want you again to think about that hand on the head of the animal that would then be killed. I want you to think of that sobriety, of that picture, of that tangible reality of what was sacrificed for you. And I want you to realize that in a certain sense, Jesus gives you the same opportunity when you come to the Lord's Supper together. We've talked about this in, in, in the last week. Does that become the body of Christ? No, of course it doesn't. But when you take that bread 
which, are, which Jesus says is a symbol of his body, you, in a sense, are putting your hand once again on the head of that sacrifice. You are, if you, have, if you will, a tangible reality, a tangible symbol of what he has done for you, and you recognize your body was broken for me, just like that goat is slain for the Old Testament Jew. And when you drink that cup, you are again getting, if you will, a tangible symbol, a tangible reality of that blood of that goat that was smeared on the horns of the altar and poured out right in front of you. And you drink of it and you said, this blood was poured out for me. It was applied to the mercy seat of God for my sin. The Lord's Supper is a tangible reminder, a tangible reality of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ and of its ongoing effect for you and your forgiveness of sin. It is a symbol and it is a picture that should be just as meaningful to us, that should be just as much an act of worship and of approach to God as it was in a sense, for these Jews in the Old Testament. What is the book of Leviticus about? At least, for certainly, these first seven chapters, it is about God offering access to his people. It is about an approach being required of repentance and faith toward a particular kind of substitution that was made and of a promised acceptance that every one of us can claim by faith in Jesus Christ. I hope and I pray that this symbol and this picture and each chapter as we read in this book will point us toward our own reality of our acceptance before God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this book. It is profitable and it can teach us so much if we will stop and we will listen and we will accept it by faith. I pray, Father, that if there's even one here tonight or within the sound of my voice who has never accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for them, Father, I pray that they would see the substitute that has been offered, that in a certain sense tonight they would put their hand on the head of that sin offering and recognize that that substitution was for them. And I pray for us as we come to the Lord's Supper tonight that we ourselves would identify with Jesus, that we would worship him as our substitute, that we would feel and taste these symbols and recognize and experience afresh the love of Christ for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You see this picture we've seen tonight, it, again, is another reminder of why we are to examine